particular place. So you just sign up for an hour and during that day and night, 24 hours uh, during that, and then pray. So, Father, we want to... Um, yeah, we want to pray, Lord. We want to do it better and speak to you for longer and hear from you. Um, and, Lord, it, it's so easy... It's so easy to be distracted. You know that's true for me, Lord, so I'm assuming it must be true for many of us here. I pray, Father, that you would help us with that and that all of these different ways that we are um, thinking about and trying to um, kind of keep our mind focused, that you will be pleased with our thinking of those ways and that you will really help us to do what we want to do. Lord, um, that we might really come closer to you because that's what I want, that's what I think we all want, that's why we're here, actually. Um, And so I thank you, Father, because I know that you're faithful and that you take our meagre offering and you turn it into something marvellous. And so I'm expecting and excited, Lord, that um, it will be wonderful. And I thank you for that. I thank you for every single person here, Lord, and I ask you to speak to each one of us individually and collectively that we might go from here at the end of the day knowing that we have been in your presence and that we have heard your word to us. And um, I thank you, Father. I thank you for the great privilege of that. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I expect that some people, well, I'm, I'm hoping not, but I think there'll be one or two who leave at lunchtime because you've got other things to do. I can't think what on a Saturday, but, you know, maybe you have. I just wanted to say that if you leave, uh, directly after lunch, we're going to spend five or ten minutes praying um, in twos and threes. And, um, and also the second part of the day, so after lunch, um, is, is more about how we uh, get closer to Christ so how we, and how we do that together. Not individually, because I'm sure everybody knows pretty much how to do that individually, but how we do that together. So the first part of the day, and I feel to explain this, because now we're going to look at Matthew 7, and those um, horrific words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, many will come to me on that day, and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I in your name cast out demons? And, and the Lord Jesus will say, depart from me. I never, ever, ever, ever knew you. Um, And so we're going to spend the next session, really, talking about those words and what that means um, in terms of who he's speaking to. And um, so I I wouldn't want you to think that the whole day is going to go in the same vein because there will be an uplift after lunch. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just felt to explain that because, you know, I didn't want long faces and crying all over the place. And um, but really... uh, I would say 90% of the people, maybe more, who come to anything like this or who do regular Bible study with us or who, you know, when we're talking about Matthew 7, for example, these verses, I'm not saying that you're like this. I'm not trying to imply that you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, I never knew you. I don't mean that at all. But I actually feel it's really important for us to understand that there will be many people who call themselves Christians who will stand before Jesus and who will hear those words. And the whole point of this is not that we can separate ourselves and say, well, we're okay, we're not going to be like that, but so that how can we live in a way that minimizes that number, that we do as much as we can do to proclaim the, true, the truth of Christ and so help those people who are in danger 
in real grave danger of um, thinking they're going to heaven, but actually they're on the road to hell. Um, so uh, that being said, uh, let's take a look at the, some of the verses in the New Testament that before we get to Matthew 7, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll know these verses very well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, uh, Paul writing about the state of the church in the last days, but realize this, in the last days difficult times will come, that difficult times means times of stress. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these." Now, you can read those verses and think that Paul's talking about the world because the world is like that. But he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the professing church, in the professing church. And you know that because in verse 5 he says, holding to a form of godliness, yet denying its power. And, um, and in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he'll go on in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we know that that's what God told Paul to write to Timothy, to write to us. We know that that is happening in our day and, and will continue to happen. That there is... Uh, the, 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 the thing we call the church is not the church. The thing we kind of look at, that the world looks at and calls the church, is not the church. The church is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ. The church is made up of people who have surrendered to Jesus and called him Lord. But the professing church is huge. It's massive. And so there are two things going on at the, t at the same time. And actually, the longer we are with the Lord, the more we're in the word, the more we are trying to know him, wanting to know him, uh, surrendering to him, the more we are aware of that situation around us, that there is apathy. And you, I'm sure, can sense it. There is apathy in the church. There is a, a distraction. There is um, all these things that take the time. I mean, I, I was just chatting with a pastor yesterday, and uh, he was talking about prayer, you know, how, how difficult it is to get people to come together to pray. I mean, why is that? Why is it so difficult for us to come together to pray? I mean, I know people. I've, I've, you know, I, I meet people. I've been a Christian 26 years. I've been with people who say, I mean, I can't possibly meet in the week. I'm just too busy. I mean, it, we, we live in a world that is just too busy. And unfortunately, that we live in a church that is just too busy. And, and people are not professing believers and not 
choosing to do the things that the Lord has laid down for us to do. They're choosing other things. And that tells you that apostasy is just around the corner. You know that it's happening and that it's coming in like a flood. Um, Paul says when he writes to Timothy, it's cloaked in something. That all of this stuff is cloaked in something called religion. It's cloaked in something called godliness. But it is not the real thing. It's not the real thing. Anyone who's been to anything of Desiring Truth will know that. Um, I always use that example of bank tellers um, years ago. Bank tellers would be trained with banknotes to be able to um, see counterfeit notes very quickly. And uh, they didn't spend one moment on the counterfeit notes. They didn't look at them, they didn't see them, they didn't touch them, they didn't do anything. They just spent the whole time, three months they used to be trained, three months, and all they did was handle the real thing. Look at it, smell it, feel it count it, put it in. That's all they did for three months. It seems inconceivable now that that would happen, but that's all they did. So that when eventually they were on the counter, you know, at the counter in the bank, they would know instantly when a counterfeit note came across. They wouldn't, it wasn't that they'd spent any time studying the counterfeit. It was just that they knew the real thing so well. That is the only way to, to recognise deception is to know the real thing so well that even though you don't know exactly why a thing is deception, you know that it is. We need to be in that place because this, these are the days and God is calling us to make ready. So let's look at Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of a long sermon um, at the, called the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uh, is recorded in Luke and in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and he slammed against that house. Sorry, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Um, all the, of all the tragedies, this must be the greatest. That it is possible for people to stand before Jesus at the end thinking that they are his that they are going to be with him only to find out that he never knew them. Um, and Jesus is not talking to people who have not heard the truth. He's not talking to people who don't know the truth. He's talking to people who have heard the truth. Who have heard the truth but have in some way rejected it either willingly 
or with our understanding. And either way, they will not be where they want to be at the end. So deception matters not because people teach it only, but that people believe it. You know, of course, to teach, deliberately teach deception, there will be a much greater accountability. But to be a believer of deception is also affecting people's eternal destiny. So if that's true, it's paramount importance that we know truth and that we speak truth and live truth. If that's true, then we should be able to find things that back up chapter 7 of Matthew. If Jesus is God and he's speaking what is true, we should be able to find those things all over scripture, his warning about that. And of course, that's exactly what you find. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writing to the church in Rome, trying to explain to them what Christianity is, this great thesis of Christianity, which is Romans. He writes in chapter 2, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He, he is not a Jew just who has been physically circumcised. Paul will say true circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. And what he's trying to explain to them is true belief, being a part of the family of God, being within the covenant of God, is something that happens in your heart. It doesn't matter all the things you say and all the things you do. If your heart is not for God, then he will say to you on that day, I never knew you. Because it's the heart He'll say in chapter 10, with the heart you believe, with the mouth you confess Jesus is Lord, and with the heart you believe. It is a heart condition. And when he talks about heart, true circumcision is of the heart, he doesn't mean your feelings. He means your will, the center of your being, a surrendered will, a will that has been given over to him as Lord. Now, every one of us can ask that question, have I done that? Have I really done that? And I'm expecting you all to say yes to yourselves, not out loud, but to yourselves. So this is not necessarily for you because you're sitting here. This is for us to be able to understand when we go home, when we talk to people in our churches, when we, when we mix and fellowship with other people who are professing believers, who actually may well think they are believers because they've never been taught this. They've never been shown this. It's not that they're deliberately wicked. It's not that they're any worse than you, actually. They might be better than you in terms of morality, but they're not within the family of God. And if it's true that Jesus is returning soon, that must be the most important thing for every one of us to understand. Yes, we are to take the gospel out. Yes, we are to make disciples. Yes, we are to tell people about Jesus. But in order to do that, we have to first be a disciple. You have to be a disciple to make a disciple. You have to know Jesus in order to let someone else know about him. So, um, 
You find it in Romans, you find it in Jeremiah, you find it all over the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 1, you have God coming to this young man and saying, I'm going to send you out. He says, I'm going to send you out to my people and you're going to tell them what's going to come. And the reason I'm sending you is so that they repent. And when you think about Jeremiah, when you think about the Bible, the Bible is written to the people of God. The Bible is not written to unbelievers. The Bible, or you know, professing people who know they're unbelievers. The Bible is written to people who think they are believers. The Old Testament is written to the people of God, is written to Israel, and the whole of it is the history of that nation and the call of God to come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. The New Testament, apart from the Gospels, which is the transition. Uh, chapters. The whole of the rest of the New Testament is written to the people who call themselves the church. It's the letters. It's the uh, it's all the letters of Paul and Peter and John and all of that to leading to Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what's going to happen in the end, and it's all about talking to people who are believers or who call themselves believers. And the wonderful thing about that is, when you pick up your Bible, you know this is a book written to you. I call myself a believer. This is God's writing to me. So when Jeremiah speaks in Jeremiah, and God tells Jeremiah to go and do this, he's saying, go and do this to a people who think they belong to me, but actually don't. Jeremiah writes in the days when um, Josiah says at the beginning of the book, Jeremiah says that he wrote in the days of certain kings. And one of those kings was Josiah, who came to the throne of Israel when he was eight years old. And when he was about 12, he set about restoring the uh, right practice of the Jews. And he started to cut down all the idols and the, and the uh, different poles that they were worshipping. And they started restoring the temple in Jerusalem. And while they were restoring it, they found the book of the law. They found what for us is essentially the Bible. And the, the, can you imagine? They had lost the book of the law in the temple of God. I, I, you just can't even, you couldn't make it up. And now you take that to our day, and you know we have lost the book, the Bible, in the house of God. We've lost it. We, you can go to a million churches across the Western world, and you will hear a sermon with one or two uh, verses in it. You'll see verses on the walls. You'll see songs that actually have a couple of scriptures in them. But mostly, there is no talk about the Word of God. And it will be filled with people who do not open their Bible from one Sunday to the next, if they even have one. And actually, they don't need to have one anymore, because now it's all on the screen. So now you don't need to have a Bible. And this is not me banging my feet and saying, you need to do what I do. You need to have 500 Bibles in your home, and you need to read them every day. Not that I do that, but you know, you need, to, you need that. This is the reality of God. He's saying, I gave you all this, and you're just not picking it off the shelf. And you, that, yet you're saying to me, you love me. Well, I, that just doesn't correlate. So Jeremiah is told, go and speak to my people. Go and tell them this is what's going to happen to them if they do not repent. And you and I, we have been called by God to go and speak to the people of God, the people calling themselves the people of God. And we are supposed to tell them, this is what's coming. You better be ready. You better be ready. Because one day, 
God is going to call up the body of Christ and you're not going to be with them. I don't mean you're going to say that exactly. Do you know what I mean? Not not the first thing you say at least. (laughs) Not to the person. But we are to be aware of what that looks like and what that is. So, um, Jeremiah, all the way through the Bible, all the prophets called the people of God back to God. All of them spoke to the Israel, telling them, you think that you're worshipping me, but you're not worshipping me. And in the New Testament, Paul will say in Hebrews 13, uh, sorry, in 2 Corinthians 13, he will say, examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Why? Because Paul knew Matthew 7. Many will come to me on that day and will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we in your name do this and that and the other thing? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. We think all the time in the church that we are that all of this Bible is written to the, to the world and that we can see the world in the pages of this book, and you can in some ways, but the Bible's written to, to professing believers, Old and New Testament. It's the revelation of God to his people, and within those people are the tares. And we are not supposed to pull them out, we're supposed to talk to them about the Lord so that they can be changed. And while we're doing that, we have to understand two things, which we'll go into a little bit more uh, after lunch, but two things that are true, and that is that God poured out his spirit at Pentecost. And if you have come to know the Lord Jesus, if if you have put your trust in him, then you are filled with his spirit. And that he will do great and mighty things through you. He will do amazing things through you because he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care how intelligent you are. He doesn't care how, how, what your social status is. He will do amazing things through you. And the next thing is he created a work for you to do, a specific thing for you to do. And he knows what that is. And you may not know what that is, but you only have to ask him what that is and he will show you what that is and then you might spend a long time you know thinking you haven't got a purpose and you haven't got a gift and you haven't got a life and you haven't got a work because that's what we do don't we oh my goodness no no, everybody else you've all got it but I haven't got it because the things of our life become so difficult that we can't see our way through that and we get consumed by the difficulty of our life and I'm not minimizing the difficulty but I am telling you if you are in a situation that you can't escape and that you and that it's terrible and constraining you on every side then you can be absolutely sure that God has you there and that he will work through you because that is his promise When you walk through the fire, I will be with you. When you go through the flood, I will be with you. When you are in a situation, when you are in the lion's den, I will be there. When you are in the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I will be walking with you. There is no situation in your life that God is not present. And he will use you. And work through you with that work he created in advance wherever you are. So if you think you have, you're in a place where you can't do anything for God, you can be sure that he's doing through you.
that's a wonderful thing, don't you think? <laughs> that's just such a wonderful thing. So Paul um, calls to us to test ourselves, examine ourselves. And, um, and, and when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to them as a body. And he's saying, I want you to test yourselves individually and collectively. Do you see Jesus in your midst? Do you see Jesus in your midst? Not just in your own heart, but in the midst of the body of believers, your local believers, as they were in Corinth. Do you see Christ at work in that body? And the reason he's telling them that is because there were a lot of people in Corinth who thought that they belonged to the Lord, but actually didn't. And you know that because he, over and over again he tells them, what you're doing is sin. First Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you know, uh, that some were homosexuals, some were perjurers, some were murderers, some were this, some were that, some were the other thing, immorality, and, or thieves, and uh, all of those things. Such some of you were, he says, but you were washed, you were cleansed. So what he's saying is, and he says at the end of that, don't be deceived, no unrighteous person will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, it's like as plain as the nose on your face. Don't be deceived. So if you're in a fellowship where people are deceived by that, which we are all over this country and all over the Western world, if you are in a fellowship like that, at some stage, God is going to ask you to stand up and talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with grace and with love, and not from a position of, I'm okay because I am totally without sin, but from a position of, I know how hard it is not to be those things, because I have to struggle not to be those things, do those things. First Corinthians, chapter 6, I think it is, or chapter 9, one to, no, it's chapter 6, it is chapter 6. Um, let me just go there, it's not on your notes, sorry, because I've just... Uh, remembered it. First Corinthians chapter 6, 9, thank you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable." And I will not be bastard by anything. What he's saying is, some of those Corinthian believers were those things. There's nobody anywhere who is beyond the mercy and the grace of God. And some of those Corinthian believers had to struggle not to be those things. They were washed. They were sanctified. They were set apart. But you can bet your bottom dollar a lot of them struggled not to be homosexual not to live a homosexual life. And there are people in our day writing books about the struggle that they have to, to, be, to, to maintain abstinency. Is that the word? To, to, you know. So that's what they're doing. They're struggling to live the life they know God wants them to live. And sometimes they fall, but they never lose their salvation. And the difference between someone like that and someone who is totally given over to their own life and doesn't care one jot about it is the heart. It's the heart condition. 
And it's the same. He, he talks about, what does he, he says? It's not just those things. We pick things, don't we? Because we, we know what's worse. God doesn't obviously know that. Covetous, thieves, revilers, swindlers. You know, we have a list of things like, this is the worst, and then these are okay. And I'm, I'm down here, I do these few things, and they're okay. You know, well, we do, we do that. We like to have these, you know, structures and hierarchies, and this is worse than that. God doesn't have those things. He doesn't have those things. But what he does have is the same thing for all of us. Will you give me your heart? Will you give me your will? Everything else I'll take care of. Will you give me your will? Will you believe that what I say is sin is actually sin? And will you trust me that though you might struggle every day of your life until the day you see me, I will be purifying you? It's not for us to sit in judgment on this person or that person or how. how. It's for us to understand that someone's eternal destiny depends on them understanding the reality of what salvation is. Salvation is you giving your heart to God, trusting him with everything that you have, saying that you will do his will and that you will trust him to make it possible for you to do it because you can't do it on your own. So I've got some questions, really. Um, you know, how is it possible that the Corinthian church were in that place where they might not recognize that Christ was in, um, amidst them and, and where they might not know whether they actually were believers or not? How is that possible? So I've got some questions. Do you have a superficial understanding of the gospel? Can you explain what redemption is, what repentance is, what forgiveness is? Can you explain what sin is? Can you explain why people sin? Can you explain those things? Because most of the people who are deceived do not have a proper, a full understanding, a biblical understanding of those things. They do not understand redemption. They do not understand what repentance means. And sometimes no one's ever told them what repentance exists. Do you have those? Can you, can you explain those things to someone? Do you know true salvation for yourself because you have genuinely turned from your sin? Now that might take you a long time. You know, I've told you so many times, part, several sins of mine are still going on, I guess, and, but many of them took me a long time to lay aside. I'm not talking about complete and utter sinlessness. John will say, if anyone says he has got no sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So it's not, we, we will almost certainly never reach sinless perfection in this life. But the whole point is that you want to, and that when God shows you something, you will battle with all your strength not to be what he has shown you. Because a lot of what we understand about Christianity in the West is just an emotionalized fairy tale. Do we know redemption? Do we know repentance? Do we know what sin is? Do we know what grace is? Do we know what it means to live in the grace of God? 
Is your Christianity superficial? This is question number two. Is your superficial? Is your Christianity superficial? And I've got a couple of questions. Do you feel good about God and have an emotional attraction to him? Do you think that because you want to be transformed that you're actually saved? Do you think that if you pray to God to fix you, that you're okay? And these are not easy questions because part, there's part, partly truth in there. If you pray for God to fix you, he will do all that he, he is able to do to fix you. But he will never do that alone. As I said earlier, you have to go along with the sanctification. Some people think that they pray for God to fix them and then they don't have to do anything. They think that it's enough just to want to be better. They don't actually have to be better. Do you see what I mean? I don't mean better in terms of, it's probably the wrong word. Some people think that they want to be close to God, they want to know Christ, and that that's enough. It isn't enough. Wanting to know Christ is the first step. We have this overwhelming urge to tell everyone who doubts their salvation, oh no, you're really saved. Don't you worry about it. You're really saved. That's what we want to do. It comes out of our mouth quick as anything. You know, someone comes up to you, so I'm, I'm really, really struggling because I'm not sure I'm saved. And everyone in the room says, of course you are. I saw you walk to the front. I've seen you raise your hands when they play the music. You go to church, don't you? That's what we do. And we do it because we think that's what love is. And we think that's what grace is. None of the above. Not feeling good about God, not wanting God to fix you, not uh, thinking that because you want to be transformed, you're okay. None of that is salvation. It's none of it salvation. Salvation is turning from other things to God. And it doesn't matter how imperfectly you do that at the beginning it matters only that you carry on on that path that your prayer is nevertheless not my will but yours be done and yes you'll fail I fail miserably but there's always this pick up okay Lord tomorrow's a new day do you think that because you're basically a good person that you're saved? I'm a good person and I, I believe God exists, so I'm saved. Do you think that's true? No. I'll tell you why. Because God only saves sinners. He doesn't save good people. Whether there are any or not, I don't know, but let's just say he doesn't. It's only sinners. He only saves sinners. He only justifies sinners. Do you know the morality of the Bible? I.e., Do you agree with the Bible? You think abortion's terrible. You think homosexuality and immorality is a sin. Um, you think that stealing is a sin and murder is a sin. And so because you basically agree with God about those things, you think you're a Christian? You're not a Christian because you agree. There are a million moral, ethical people who are not believers. Have you come in repentance? Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, the gate is narrow or small and the way is narrow 
and few find it. I don't want him to say that. I want him to say it's okay, just everybody, no matter where you are, just everybody, just come on in, it's okay. And in a way, the call is that, isn't it? It's like everybody is welcome. There is no one not called. There is no one who does not have the opportunity to put their trust in Jesus. And as soon as you do, you are welcomed into the family. And it doesn't matter where you are or what you've done or even what you will do. Afterwards, it matters only that you've recognized Jesus is God, that he is Lord, and that you have recognized that so much and your own undeservedness that you turn from everything else and you turn to him. And if you're like me, you didn't know what everything else was. You didn't. You would have said you were a good person. I thought I was a good person. Can you even imagine that? Even after I I knew about Jesus, I could still say, well, you know, I think I'm an okay person. And so God will show you more and more and more. But the question is, every time he shows you something, will you turn from that thing? And I'm laboring it, and I know you know it. But the thing is, in our churches today, we don't talk about this. We tell everybody you're okay. You're okay. Or are you a hypocrite? Do you know that you don't believe? But you just like hanging out with people who do. Because it makes you feel good about yourself. You're married to someone who believes, so you go with them to church. You don't really believe, but you just go along because it's just easier. Saves the arguments at home. But actually you can't wait to get out can't wait to get back to your internet whatever or your, um, say, internet pornography or your immorality or your bitterness or your lying or your... You just can't wait to get out of being... So you know that you're not a believer but you pretend that you are at certain stages. Are you... I don't think you are, but the question is, are you any of those people that we've talked about? I've just said. Because if you are, you're not saved. You're not saved. And one day, you will come before Jesus and you'll say, I did this and I did that and I did the other thing and I led Bible studies and I, I really, I, you know, I went to church and I, I gave myself for people and you'll say, I never knew you. I never, ever, ever knew you. Why? Because you never wanted to know me. So if that's not you, praise God. Everybody say, praise God. It's not me. Go ahead, Diana. Go ahead. Praise the Lord. I then went out into the world and made the nasty discovery that you were in a church. Yeah. Dead. Yeah. But my, my point is that you are completely saved. You oh. give your heart forward. But it's only as you mature mm-hmm. and you realise how how much you should have been. You know, you didn't. Exactly. Yeah. You didn't no, exactly. It's a growing relationship. Exactly. It's a growing 
Yes. No, it isn't. I'm a living testimony to that. It isn't. Yes, it's. But I think that there is in, there's something that God does when you make whatever it is you make at 16, 18, 20, me at 40. There is a, a kind of a recognition by God that that has come from what you know about yourself. It's come from you turning and saying, yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to know you. And so although you've still got this massive journey to go on, God recognizes that and does do something, i.e. give you his spirit. And so then you make that journey on. I agree, absolutely. Um, The reason I'm saying these things is because Jesus says there'll be plenty of people who think they believe and who actually don't. Um, so if that's not you, praise God, but how do you recognize those people? Because I'm assuming that you're not those people and that you know, you're here and you want to look at the word and you want to be with other believers and you want to get to know God more. So how will you recognize those people? Not to judge them, but to help them. How will you recognize them? Definitely. And have some way of those who are to be able to love come Exactly. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon, actually. That's exactly it. And the church is us. We're the church. You know, we're it. So in our imperfection, we are it. But we're supposed to know the difference. And that's what you're saying. Isn't it? And she's afraid to say because she knows the difference. She knows that she's not it. But she doesn't, she's too embarrassed to say. And why is she too embarrassed to say? Because... The, the body of believers that she's moving in hasn't allowed her that possibility to say. Exactly. So, um, yeah, thank you, Kate. We're going to talk about that a bit more this afternoon. So, okay, how do we recognize them? First of all, do you know people who are seeking experiences all the time? They just want the experience, the feeling. They want the blessing. They want the... A healing, they want the prosperity, they want whatever it is that God will give them. They want the things that God will give, but they don't want God. We have ministries set up for that. Whole ministries that would be saying, you know, God is a healer, he is this, he is that, he brings blessing, he does this, he does that. And so they have ministries of, of, of healing ministries and all of that. And I'm not saying, God heals. He's Jehovah Rapha. He is the Lord who heals, of course. But 
but the whole purpose of this life is that we get to know this God who heals and that we want him and not just what he gives. So do you know people who are interested only in the byproducts of Christianity rather than Christ himself? Can you say, and do they say honestly, what Paul says in Philippians 3, which I quoted earlier, that I press on, that I might know Christ, the, fellowship of his, the um, power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Not that I've already attained it, he says, but I press on. Can they say, can you, in, can you say, do you know people who are committed to a church or a Christian organization like Desiring Truth? more than they are to the word of God. Do you know people who, who just, they're, they're really committed to your fellowship, to, but they're, they're actually not bothered about the word of God? My question is, how is it possible to know God and not be bothered about his word? I honestly don't know how that is possible. How is that possible? Not that you don't, not that you need to study it. Not that you need to be, you know, super intellectual and doing it. But that you're not bothered about whether you read it or not. Do you know people who, who the opposite of that? They want to have all the theological knowledge they can have. They want to build up their knowledge of scripture. They want to tell you what they know all the time. They want to tell you, you know, this verse and that verse and, and what that means and, and all of that rather than, they have that rather than a deep understanding of who Christ is. They know about him, but they don't know him. You, how do you know they don't know him? Because they don't stand in awe of this Christ who would die for them because what they know is all up here do you know people who are overindulgent in grace <sighs> rather than holiness personal holiness I'm not talking about other people's holiness I'm talking about their own do you know people who are just so like pour out the grace everywhere, grace on me, grace on you, it's all grace. Don't worry about holiness, that's okay. You can never do that anyway because you're just never going to make it. So it doesn't matter. God loves you and he has poured out his grace on you and he's definitely poured out his grace on me. So there's absolutely no requirement for me to live holy. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who are extremely legalistic? <laughs> who have their rules and their regulations and you have to match up to them, otherwise you definitely are not saved. Both sides of the same coin. Do you know people who see God as a means to an end? Their ambitions, their dreams, you know. And God's going to get them where they want to be. And this is a hard one because we're not talking about, we all have, all of this is in all of us probably. This is not that we're, we're free of all these things. This is that we ask God to show us these things so that we can be laying them aside and going on in our pressing on for him. How do you minister to these people? Tell me how you minister to these people. When you recognize them, how do you minister to them? <laughs> you know the answers. Come on. I ask a few 
Yeah, of course, no wagging of fingers. Definitely not, yes. Kate is saying she asks questions. Was the overriding uh, state of being towards, from you to these people? Love. love. You must love them. Why? Because God loves them. Because God loves them. And because in some way, shape or form, they are deceived. They are deceived. And, and you, knowing the truth, want to love them enough to tell them the truth. So you love them, which means what? Get to know them. Share what you know. Not necessarily all in the first half hour, you know. You're going to minister to them. Really minister to them. You're going to be Jesus to them. What did Jesus do to the Pharisees and the, the people who came and who thought they were okay? He ministered to them. He told them the truth and he lived the truth in front of them. He actually washed Judas' feet. We are to minister to one another and, and, and love them. How do you do that? What are you going to pray, first of all? What will you pray? We're getting to the good stuff. This afternoon will be better, I promise. So what will you do? What, how will you pray for these people? Yes. There you go. Wonderful answer. You're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to you so that you can speak to them or that he'll show you what to do for them. You know, is it baking them a cake? Is it, is it doing something that, you know, whatever. What is it that God would have you say, stroke, do? And what's the second thing? So praying for the Holy Spirit to do that, which is like the essential thing. And then what's the second thing? Well, all essential. What's that? What's, there's just one more thing. Yeah, yes, do what he says to do, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Anna. Yeah. You're going to live the gospel. You have to live the gospel. You have to preach the gospel, the gospel's words, but it's also living. You have to be the gospel to them. I mean, honestly, this is so hard. It's simple, but it's hard. Because this is a 24-hour-a-day job. And, and often with people who don't know that they're not saved, who really think that they are saved and that, and that this, is, this is what it is, inside of them, they have a desperate hole that needs filling because they don't have the real thing. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So they have all the external stuff, but that doesn't satisfy because only the Holy Spirit satisfies. So you have to bring the Holy Spirit into their life. You have to be God to them in some ways. I know you can't, but you know what I mean. You have to witness to God. You have to live for God in front of them, speaking, talking, doing, all of it, so that they start to see, wow, there's more than I thought. Mm. In my experience, is those people who are really spending their life being absolutely lovely to other people without the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And they maybe think that they're seeing people in the church mm. who are not as lovely. Exactly. And, and, that, and I find that 
It's a challenge. Mm, it is, exactly. But why is that happening? You know, it's because we who know the Lord are not living like the Lord in front of them. Um, Jesus, as I say, we're going to take a break in a minute and have lunch, but um, our destiny is not what we say, it's how we live. It's not determined. Yeah, go ahead, Maureen. A clean heart, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And that's what Jesus says, actually, in this sermon. Why are you trying to take the splinter out of your friend's eye when you've got a huge plank in your own eye? That's exactly what he says. Um, yeah, thank you. So... Um, yeah, just to wrap it up then, uh, Jesus is speaking about people who, th- or to people and about people who think that they have believed whatever it was. He's speaking to Jews, remember? So he's, he's speaking to Jews who think they are in the covenant of God, and actually a lot of them are not and will not be. And he's also, by extension, we're taking that and saying he's speaking to us, the professing church, and showing us that actually there are some people who think that they are building their house. So they're actually next door to you. They're building their house next door to you in the same road. And it looks just like your house. It's got all the bricks and it's got the windows and the drapes in the window and they've got the furnishings inside and it looks to all intents and purposes like your house. But the storm comes and it will be washed away. Why? Because they didn't build on the rock. And the thing about building on the rock is it takes time to dig out the foundation. You have to dig it out. It takes time. That's what you're talking about, actually, Diana, isn't it? That it takes time and actually effort to build that house. This is not a flat pack, you know, Ikea flat pack. You just take it home, put it up. This is like digging out the foundation, building up on that foundation. It takes time to do that. No, no, it can't. Yeah, exactly. But that's where they're obviously deceived because they think. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. 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 Definitely. Yeah. No. Yes. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. Because also what, we, what I think we do is we, we think that if I really tell you how I am, you're not going to want this God. <laughs> because I want to be like perfect so I can show you a perfect God. But actually that's never true. If I show you who I am compared to this perfect God, but that I, if you think this is imperfect, wow, you should have seen me then, then, you get, then people get an understanding. And then they can relate to you and you can relate to them. You know, who can relate to a perfect person? You can't. You just can't. And Jesus learned obedience by the he suffered, suffered. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Garby, what are you doing quoting all this scripture? <laughs> Come up here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there she said it in two minutes, and I took two hours to do. So there you go. Um, we're going to have lunch now. Um, I just want to finish with this. You know, we won't manage perfection. That's what you're saying. Not this side of heaven. But it is, it's so important that we, we are real, that we show people what it's like, how hard it is sometimes to live the Christian life. It's really hard. And that we encourage, that we recognize in one another those areas and that we're not afraid to talk about them. You know, yeah, it's hard not to, it's hard to live the Christian life. It really is hard. But the, the prize, the prize at the end is so wonderful that we press on for it. So, um, yeah, so over lunch, yeah, you can talk about everybody else, not yourself. <laughs> so, Father, we want to thank you. Thank you that we can go and have lunch now. Thank you that we can fellowship one with another. Thank you that uh, you are a God who speaks. Thank you, Father, that you will show us how to move forward in this and that you won't leave us here where we are now just knowing that people are deceived but that you will take us on and help us to actually do our part in the building up of the body of Christ. And I thank you for it, Lord, because that's what we want to do. We want to know how to serve you and we want to love you better. So we thank you, Lord. I thank you for the food we're going to eat and the conversations we're going to enjoy. And I pray that you would make your presence known to us as we do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So I think about an hour, probably, an hour and a bit. Hmm.